Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 3. We come to the most famous verse in the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16. It is found on the bottom of In-N-Out Cups. If you look at the bottom, you'll see the reference, John 3.16. I know that because I frequent that place often. It is also found on Forever 21 bags. I do not know that because I frequent that place often. I know that because of some, a quick Google search that I did. Um, I don't think I've ever stepped foot in that store, and I don't know if I'm missing anything. Tim Tebow got in trouble in college for wearing little uh, black eyeliner patches under his eyes that had John 3.16 on uh, those eyeliner patches. Um, in fact, after the game that he wore those, the one that he got in trouble, um, the Google search for what does John 3.16 mean was uh, greater in number than it's ever been before. So praise the Lord for Tim Tebow. Something so simple to just stick these things on your eyes to um, help the glare of the sun uh, while playing football. He just says, hey, in a simple way I can go ahead and get people thinking. Praise the Lord for that. Often we think of John 3.16 as a verse that is for beginners. Uh, you, uh, you need to understand this verse, you need to receive this verse, and then you'll understand the gospel, and then you can move on to better verses like the whole book of Romans or something like that. But this verse is not for beginners. I believe that if we truly understood this verse, our marriages would be better. If we truly understood this verse, our relationships with our coworkers would be better. If we truly understood this verse, our fight against sin would be fiercer. This verse is not just for beginners. But we can totally understand why we think it's for beginners. We can totally see why it has become the most famous verse in the Bible. If you just look at it, it has such immense realities. John chapter 3, verse 16, it has God, the greatest of all beings. It has love, the greatest of all um, emotions and choices that we can ever make. It has the world, the, the largest scale possible for all of humanity to fit on. It has a giving from God, a gift that God has given to us. It has God's Son. It has belief. What is belief? It has eternal life. There's nothing greater than to know that you have eternal life. So we can obviously see why this verse is so impactful to so many people at a very early stage in their Christian life. I want to get some background. Um, we're going to preach on just one verse uh, this morning. We're just going to study one verse, but I want to get background to it to remind us the context of where we are, because I believe the context gives us a very helpful understanding of what this verse is about. John chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. So Nicodemus first asks a question that's not really even asked. It's just underlying what he's saying. Jesus knows his heart and Jesus answers this non-question by saying you cannot get to heaven unless you are born again. And the analogy is a very simple one. We try to complicate it and make it overly complex, but it's actually very simple. What did you contribute to your physical birth? Nothing. Therefore, you contribute nothing to your spiritual birth. God must do it. And we looked, uh, we spent an entire Sunday a couple weeks ago looking at why that's the case theologically, biblically, why we cannot uh, be involved in any way, shape, or form in our regeneration. We do not do anything to be born again. Nicodemus asks him the second question, how can these things be? How can a man be born again when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus says, let me help you with that. And by helping Nicodemus, I think he kind of gives us a little bit more confusion by saying you must be born of water and of the Spirit. But we looked at that in Ezekiel to clearly see you must be forgiven. That's the water. You must be cleansed. And you must be born again, regenerated, given a new heart. The heart of stone is taken out. The heart of flesh is given to you. So you must be forgiven of your sins and you must be given a new nature, a new heart. And Nicodemus would have known that. Flesh producing flesh, you cannot be born physically again, and even if you could, it wouldn't help because flesh only produces flesh. The spirit born from above needs to produce in you life. He says, don't be amazed at that. And then verse 8, another analogy, the wind blows wherever it wishes. It just, it's uh, uncontrollable. You can't tell it where it's supposed to go. You can't catch it. You can't see it. So too is the spirit working in our lives. Nicodemus asks a third question that we looked at last week. How can these things be? This is in verse 9. And Jesus answers and says to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? You should. You should figure these things out. You should know them from the Old Testament. Verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then he connects it to verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven where the heavenly things are and they are known, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. So I know the heavenly realities. I can explain them to you because I came to earth to do that. And here's the answer. How can these things be? How can the new birth take place? How can you be born again? Here's the answer. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. Must he be lifted up? So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. The answer is the way to receive the new birth and to have it happen in your life is to look upon Jesus and believe. Then verse 16 attached to that with the word for. The most famous verse in the Bible is an afterthought. It's a a secondary statement. It's not the primary clause. It's a secondary clause. Jesus says, as Moses was lifted up, or as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man himself must be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life, because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved 
through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Father, I pray as we look at this passage that you would give us eyes to see your love for us. And that we would be blown away even as we prepare our hearts to take communion together. That we would be blown away by the amazing grace that you have given to us in the gift of your Son. We pray it in his name for his glory. Amen. So this is Nicodemus' third question. And Jesus is answering this question. This is still part of the answer to his third question. We're not going to see Nicodemus ever again in this section of Scripture. We'll see him in chapter 7. We'll see him in chapter 19. But we won't see him again here. He fades away. That isn't because he is unimportant. He's still there. He's still listening. I think that John's doing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for a point. And the point is this. What Jesus has been saying specifically and individually to Nicodemus is a universal truth. And so Nicodemus fades away. No more singular focus of Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Now it's to the entire world. It's a universal focus. And in this universal focus, in this one verse, in John 3.16, there are 12 amazing reasons why this is the greatest verse in all of the Bible. 12 amazing reasons. We're going to get to all 12 this morning. We're going to go through some of them very quickly. We're going to go through some of them rather slowly. Um, Our Kent Hughes uh, preached a sermon on John 3.16 one time, and he brought out a lot of these realities. And so I'm just going to use his outline because I found it very, very helpful. Uh, We're just going to take it word for word um, as we go through this verse, and you will see the greatest verse in the Bible has the greatest realities ever for all of humanity, for all of human history inside of this verse. So number one, God. For God... This is the greatest being in the universe. God so loved the world. God is the greatest being in the universe. He is your creator. He made you. He owns you. He controls you. He is the one who deserves all praise and all glory. Everything in the universe revolves around him and shouts to us that he has created us and he is good and he is God alone. He has revealed himself powerfully in his creation Psalm chapter 19 says that the heavens declare they shout forth the glory of God. They make known his handiwork. It's obvious that there is a creator. Romans 1 says that everybody knows there is a God because of creation. And yet some people will stiff arm arm that and suppress the truth. They know the truth, but they'll suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Max Lucado says that the number one missionary in the entire universe is the universe. It is shouting forth the glory of God. God is the greatest being ever. He is eternally existent, never had a beginning, never has an end. And yet, creation isn't the only place that reveals who he is. He reveals himself generally in creation as the creator, as the greatest being ever. But he reveals himself specifically, specially in his word. He makes known who he is through his testimonies, through his witness. And he lets us know that he is holy. He lets us know his character. He lets us know that he is sinless, that he is perfect, that he is set apart, that there is no one like him. 
And he lets us know that anything that doesn't match up to who he is is sin. If we do things that align with who he is and with his character, that is righteousness. If we do things that don't align with him and don't align with his character, that is sin. Sin is defined by who God is because if we do what God is uh, not, if we do the opposite of who God is, we are sinning. God is the greatest being in the universe. Number two, so loved. This is the greatest reason. The greatest reason. We have the greatest being. We have the greatest reason. God loves. This is what he's, he's going to do something because of his love. He is motivated by his love. Sometimes we just intuitively and instinctively think, well, of course God loves. What else does God do? What else would he do? God's a loving God. We just kind of immediately push that on him. But since God has revealed himself to be perfect and holy, and since we are exactly the opposite of that, what else would God do other than love us? He would judge us. He he would condemn us. He would punish us. That's what we deserve. So when it says that God loves us, we should be shocked. We should not receive the love of God, and yet he does love us. We are his enemies, and he is going to love us with an amazing love that gives us his son. And this love isn't just a feeling. It's not just an emotion. Yes, it has emotion inside of it, but it's a choice. God chooses to love you. God chooses to love me. We are dead. We are enemies. And God chooses to place his love on us in such a way that there is unceasing love towards you. It's an unceasing action that he chooses to make. And he gives us his son because of it. God, the greatest being, so loved. Why is the word so there? That word so is a very descriptive word. It means to the degree that, to the end that, or in this way. God loves us. And so we ask the question, well, how do we know that? In this way, you will see God's love for you. So God's love is the greatest reason, the greatest motivation behind why he's going to send his son for us. We see God the greatest being, we see so love the greatest reason. Number 3, the world. This is the greatest need. The world is the greatest need for God so loved the world. The world. What is the world? It's the created order, it's the fallenness of mankind, it's us. This word uh, cosmos is used 186 times in the New Testament. And almost all of those times, it's used with reference to the connotation of a sinful humanity. Sinful humanity. I'll give you two references. Actually, we can look these up. John chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. There's that same word, cosmos. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it and its deeds are evil. If you go over to chapter 14, verse 17. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So the world cannot perceive. Again, sinful humanity 
There are other nuances of this word, but most often in the Bible, in the New Testament, this world means sinful humanity. Significantly to Nicodemus's mind, this would be shocking. There's a couple statements in this verse that would be shocking. Not God. Nicodemus knows God exists. Not love. Nicodemus knows God loves him. But what would shock Nicodemus first is that, Nicodem- or is that God is loving the world. Nicodemus thought God loved only Israel, only Jewish people. So for Jesus to say God loves the world and include every ethnic group inside of that, that would have shocked Nicodemus. Why does Jesus say that? If you drop back a couple verses to verse 14, Moses lifts up the serpent in the wilderness And those who look to that serpent are healed. Who is involved in that account? Are there any Gentiles in that account? No, it's all Jewish people. So if Jesus would have just said, and God loves people the exact same way, without specifying it's broader than just ethnic Israel, Nicodemus would have said, yeah, I know that. God loves us. We are his chosen people after all. So God says, Jesus says that his father loves the world, everyone. There is no ethnic group that is outside of the world. A lot of people ask, what does that word world mean? It means fallen humanity. It means every ethnic group as opposed to just national Israel. But even though this is not restricted by race, even though this is every ethnic group in the world, and that would shock Nicodemus. Even so, God's love is not to be admired because the world is so big and he loves the world. God's love is to be admired because the world is so bad and God still loves the world. God loved the world. God loves every single person in the world. And that's amazing in and of itself because the world is so massive. But what's even more amazing is not just the scale of his love, it's the fact that he loves to the degree that he will love his enemies. He will love people who hate him. He loves people that the Bible tells Christians not to love. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, John says, Do not love the world. And yet God loves the world. Now, there's really no conundrum there. God loves in a selfless, redemptive um, choosing of his love towards people. We are called to love the world that way. We are not called to love the world with a selfishness, with a sinfulness, to to participate inside of the world's sinful activities. That's all 1 John is saying. But this world is so evil, so corrupt, so fallen, and yet God says, I choose to love it. Choose to love the people inside of it. This is sinful humanity. And out of the ocean of sinful humanity pop up whosoevers. Pop up the whoevers. We are inside of that. We are stuck inside this sinful world. All believers have been chosen out of the world. This is John 15, verse 19. They are not something other than the world when the gospel first comes to them. We need to know this because with our understanding of biblical doctrine, sometimes we think 
because God has called us, because God has elected us, that somehow we did not start out as enemies of God when we were first born. We are sinful to the core by nature. We are not born Christians. We are born as children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2 says. So we are a part of the world that God loves and calls us out of. We would never have become true disciples of Jesus apart from the love of God that he had for the world. He loves the world. He loves the world. He gave his son for the world. 1 John 2, 2 says that Jesus died for the sins of the world. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says that um, the grace of God has come in such a way to give salvation as an offer to all men. Um, It's been given to all men as a free, limitless offer. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says that God desires none to perish, but every single human to come in repentance to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So what does the world mean? If I can just give you two specifics of what the world means. The world means, number one, not just Israel, but everyone. The world means not just Israel, but everyone. God loves everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. And the world means, number two, sinners. God loves sinners. God doesn't choose to love those who love him. We love him, John will say in 1 John, because he first loved us. And if he had not first loved us, and that's the love that's happening here in verse 16, then we would never have loved him. This is an offer that is going out through the entire world world. This is a free offer. This is a limitless offer to every single individual in the entire world because of God's love. The world is the greatest need that exists. We have the greatest being who is God. We have the greatest reason, his love. We have the greatest need that he's going to overcome our sinful humanity in every single heart. And number four, he gave He gave, this is the greatest act in all of human history. He gave. He loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. Think of what Nicodemus would understand in this giving. God loves Israel so much that back in the Old Testament, he gives them the law. They don't have to walk around like uh, the pagans around them who are wondering, I wonder what Baal is doing or what he thinks of me or how to get his attention. You remember First Kings chapter 18, uh, the battle on uh, Mount Carmel. Uh, I always just think Mount Carmel Macchiato because those are amazing. Uh, the battle of Mount Carmel, uh, uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Prophets of Baal are supposed to call fire down from heaven, calling upon Baal, and they wonder how to get his attention. So they pray to him, they sing to him, they dance before him they start cutting themselves they're just asking how do we get a hold of him how do we figure out how to get his attention god so loved ethnic israel that he gave them the law and he gave israel the law alone romans chapter 2 paul says in verses 14 and 15 that the law was given only to israel and yet uh, because the law was given to israel we would think that they know how to live before god and that the gentiles and pagans don't and Paul says, no, actually, the law was given in written form, in verbal spoken form to the Israelites, his chosen people. And he also imprints it upon every human heart. Romans 2.15, he gives it to every single human heart. But Nicodemus would have known, 
God has given us the law. This is a blessing. This is a huge blessing. But again, Jesus is saying this is extending not just to Israel. So it's not just the law. It's also to the Gentiles. And it is my son. It is, it is my son. He gave. Verse 17 will even qualify for us what this giving looks like. Verse 17, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So God gave his Son from heaven to earth. He sent him. The Father gave the Son, and he gave him to die. He sent him from heaven to earth, and he gave him for the purpose of dying. Whatever else you know about God, and I know you know a lot about God, But whatever else you know about God, know this, first and foremost and forevermore, that in eternity past, God the Father said to God the Son, there will be a people, and this people will hate me and will be my enemies, and they will be worthy of death. And I desire that you would go die in their place so that they could become my friends. That's the gift that he gave. Know that. You need to know that. That's a demonstration of God's love for us. The Son's mission is, as the gift to us and for us, is a consequence of God's love. Know that God loves you. So he gives the greatest act in all of human history. Number five, he gives his Son. Number five is his Son... And this is the greatest gift. So we have the greatest act is the giving. The greatest gift is this gift of his son. His only begotten son. Only begotten. Um, This is a very strange phrase and it's translated in a very weird way. It seems like this is God's only son from a physical union with somebody and they created Jesus and he's an only child. That's not what this word means. Um, this word, there, there are uh, two words stuck together in the Greek. Uh, the, the word is monogenes. Mono, one. And genes is where we get our word for uh, genetics. Um, just meaning there is no one else like him. He is one of a kind. One and only, some translations might say. He is unique. There is no one like him. What's the point of saying that? Why does... Jesus say that God gave his one and only son, his unique son. It's to stress for us the amazing nature of this gift. God didn't just give us an angel because there are a bunch of other angels like the angel he would have given. God didn't just send a star or or give us an animal or something that there are a bunch of other types like it. God gave us his son and there is no one like his son. There is no one who is more precious than his son. There is no one who surpasses the greatness of his son. When Jesus says this is his only begotten, his uniquely, supremely valuable son, he is stressing to us the amazing nature of the love that God has for us to give us his son. This always reminds me of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham told by God to go sacrifice Isaac. You know the story, they go up on the mountain, 
Uh, He ties Isaac up, says, you're going to be the sacrifice, lifts up the blade, and God says, stop. And he says, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your one and only son. There is no one like him, even though Abraham already had a son, right? He already had an heir. He already had a boy. But God says, this one's unique. And you didn't withhold him from me. I know that you love me. How much more do we know that God loves us when he lets us have his son, but then doesn't make the provision to take his son out of the picture like Isaac was taken out of the picture and there's a ram provided. Jesus is put on the cross and is destroyed on the cross, is slaughtered on the cross. We can say the same thing that God says. Now we know, God, that you love us because you did not withhold your son. You, you gave him and you allowed him to die. You crushed him in our place. The son of God is the greatest gift possible. Number six, whoever, whoever, this is the greatest opportunity. Whoever, since God loves the world, then whoever can come. Whoever, this is a free gift. This is a limitless offer. And whoever would believe can receive this. Whoever would, in the, the words of uh, verses 14 and 15, whoever would look upon Jesus Christ, uh, who is lifted up because we are sick, we are dying, we have been destroyed. If you would just look, you would be saved. There was no limit given To Moses, to the children of Israel, in the Numbers passage that we looked at last week, there's no limit. Remember, Numbers 21 was very clear. Everybody's been bitten, and there's a a serpent up on a pole that if you stare at him, anyone can stare at him, and anyone can be saved. Anyone can be healed. Same thing here. Jesus is saying, God loves the whole world, that he's going to put Jesus up in front of the whole world, that whoever would look at him and believe would be saved. Now, this can get some people into a little bit of a quandary because you have other places in Scripture that would kind of speak in this one and say, yes, but God elects, God chooses, God calls, God predestines. Amen and amen, he does. There is a tension here. The tension isn't with from this passage to other passages in Scripture. The tension is in this passage. Go back to verse 8. The wind is blowing where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it comes from, where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You must be born again. How does that happen? How do you contribute to your physical birth? Nothing. How do you contribute to your spiritual birth? Nothing. And yet, this passage, John 3.16, says, if you believe, it will happen. There's a tension there. Why is there a tension there? Very simply, there's a tension there because Deuteronomy 29.29 says that there are mysterious things that belong to God that only God knows and only God understands, that's a good thing. If you could fully understand who God is and what his plan is and how he brings it about, then you could be God. Therefore, God is not worthy of being worshipped because you are just like him. And if you could be God, I love you all very, very much, but that would be a bad thing if you were God. So the tension here is only a tension because there is mystery involved in it. There's tensions all over the scriptures, right? God commands us to pray. 
But the scriptures clearly teach that he has mapped out and planned out and ordained everything that's going to happen. So some people go to one extreme on this side of, I'm going to pray because I don't think that God commands and ordains and understands and plans and purposes what's going to happen. So they go, they take the needle, and instead of living in the tension of the mystery, they go to the one side and say, uh, I'm going to pray because God doesn't know. Some people go to the other side and say, I don't even need to pray because God's already got it mapped out. Both sides are wrong. The reason why we go to those sides is because we don't want to live in the mystery. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says there are mysterious things that belong to God. There are also things that have been revealed that belong to us. What has been revealed about prayer and God's sovereignty? It's been revealed that we're commanded to pray and that it does work and it does things. The, the prayer of the righteous man accomplishes much. It actually does something. But we're also told that God's mind's already made up and that everything's already settled and everything's finished. How do they work? I don't know. There's mystery there. What has been revealed, we know, and we try to bring it together as, as close as we can. But where we can't fully connect it, that's the mystery. Live in there. Live in that mystery. What about the mystery that Jesus was 100% human and 100% God at the exact same time? How does that work? We don't know. There's mystery inside of it. We have been given a lot of revelation of what it looks like. We know that Jesus was 100% human and 100% man at the exact same, or 100% God, 100% human at the exact same time. We know that. The Bible clearly teaches that. But sometimes we don't like that, so we move it to one side or the other. We say, well, he wasn't really human. He was, he was fully God, and so he just kind of played the part of a human. Um, one of my favorite passages on this is John 11. I think it's the best passage that speaks of Human, uh, God's humanity, Jesus' humanity, and Jesus' divinity at the exact same time. Jesus, uh, John 11, shows up at Lazarus' funeral to raise him from the dead. He knows he's going to do that. He had already told his disciples he's going to be raised from the dead. And he walks up, and he's going to find Lazarus and raise him from the dead. And before he raises Lazarus, he asks a question, and his question is, where is he buried? I'm going to raise him from the dead, but I don't even know where he's buried. Now, Either we take the needle to one extreme and say he's 100% God and he wants people to think that he's human, so he's just kind of playing at that. I have a problem with that because he's lying. Jesus will not lie. Um, There were things that Jesus didn't know. There were things that he uh, wasn't able to do. His plans were frustrated. You remember Mark chapter 7, he wanted to get alone by himself and the Syrophoenician woman walks in the door and says, excuse me, before you hang out with your disciples, I have a request of you. Please heal my demon-possessed daughter. He's frustrated by his, his plans are frustrated. They, he wanted to do something and he couldn't be alone by himself. So again, we, we take the needle and we go, okay, he's just playing at this human thing. He's not really human. He's 100% God and he's just kind of playing at being human. Or we go to the other side and say, he's all human and he's not really God. Either way, it's wrong, right? Uh, if you start pulling that needle to the side, You start getting into bad theology, and before you know it, you're in heresy if you get too far off. So, there are tensions like this all over the Bible. How about God's sovereign election and human responsibility? Which is it? Does God choose us and predestine us, or do we choose Him? Which is it? The Bible clearly teaches both. There's an order to it, but the Bible clearly teaches both. Acts chapter 2, when Peter's preaching to the Jews who had killed Jesus, he says, Men of Israel, 
Jesus, who was attested to you by miracles and signs and wonders, you killed by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of, of God. God had a purpose, God had a plan, God made it happen, and you killed him. Now, in our strangely prideful postmodern era, we would go, well, if God killed him, then I'm off the hook. Look, why are you telling me that I killed him? I didn't kill him because God's the one that delivered him up. What do the Jews say? They say, what must we do? And Peter says, repent. They don't say, well, it was God who designed it, God who ordained it, it's God. No. So is is it God's sovereign election or is it human responsibility? both at the exact same time there's mystery there anytime we try to get outside of the mystery and try to know and understand 100 fully that's when we run into conundrums back in our passage in john 3:16, the only reason this becomes an issue is because we want to try and reconcile the other passages that speak of god's election inside of this did god die for every single person did jesus die for every single person yes he did did he die for every single person in the exact same way no he didn't The Bible is very clear about that. But don't take this passage and say, well, the whosoever believes isn't really whosoever. It's not really a limitless free call to everybody because we don't really know. You're trying to see our physical time and space from God's vantage point, and that won't work. I had a friend in seminary. Uh, We would go to lunch together, and we would always try to share the gospel whenever we went to lunch. You guys know over at Master Seminary by Grace Community Church, there's a subway, there's a Del Taco, and there is an In-N-Out. And we would just walk all the way through those. Just subway one day, Del Taco one day, In-N-Out one day. Just back, forth, back, forth. And I wonder why I got kidney stones. Um, We would just go back and forth between those, and we'd always try to share the gospel. Well, I shared the gospel with somebody one time, and I said, God loves you. You know that God loves you, that Jesus died for you, that if you would repent of your sins and turn to him, you would be saved. And we left, and my friend said, Patrick, you can't say that. You can't say that. I can't say what? I just shared the gospel. You can't say that God loves them, and you can't say that Jesus died for them, because you don't know if he did. Considering the fact that we were in seminary and I should be like Christ, I decided not to punch him. Um, but I said, you're dead wrong. You're dead wrong. Um, your theology has handcuffed you and become, it's made you unbiblical in your thinking. John 3.16 clearly says that God loves the whole world. So I can absolutely tell, and you can absolutely tell anybody that God loves them. And Jesus was given for the whole world. You can absolutely tell them that Jesus was given for them, that Jesus died for them. Now we know that Jesus died in a saving way for those who would believe. We know that. It's, we overcomplicate that side of things when we think of God's specific, limited love for certain people. Some people don't like that. Um, I, I think there's a, a way that you can easily see that that's true. Ephesians chapter 5, um, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, I, I love all women... I love all women, but I, I would not dare to love all women equally. I'm married. I have a specific love for my wife that no woman will ever have. Jesus has a specific love for his bride that no one else will ever understand. Absolutely. How does that fit in here? 
There's a love that God has for everyone, and then there's a special love that's an even deeper, even greater, even more amazing love. If you are saved, you have understood the love that God has for you and for the whole world, and you have understood the love that God has for you specifically as as his bride, that he chose you and he didn't choose the persons next to you, the people that are next to you. He chose you. How that all works? Yeah, there's a mystery. I don't really think that there's that much. It all works together. It all fits together. Romans 9, a good example of this is Paul. Paul's all about election, obviously. It's biblical. Paul writes in Romans chapter 9 that God has loved Jacob and chosen to hate Esau. And before they were even born, before they were even created, before he just says, boom, I love you and I hate you and that's it. Romans 9 is all about predestination. It's all about God ordaining and purposing and planning. So you would think, if you were to ask Paul right after Romans 9, if you were to say, well, then, Paul, how do people get saved? And he goes, it doesn't matter to them. It's God. It's all up to God. Kind of a fatalistic mentality. Romans 10. So how are we going to be saved? Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You call, you're saved. Um, How does that happen? Because he ordained it. He predestined it. He purposed it. He planned it. Yes, but you have to call. We talked about this with Lazarus being raised from the dead, right? Jesus breathed life into him, but then he commands him, come forth. He doesn't force him to do that. He doesn't make him do that. Lazarus has to walk out of the tomb. So too, the Spirit breathes new life into your heart, gives you the new birth, says, come forth. And as you choose to believe in Jesus Christ, and as you choose to turn from your sin, you walk out of the tomb. God loves the whole world And he gives his only son, his one and only unique son, that whoever would believe in him. Whoever. This is anyone, this is everyone, whoever would believe. Let me give you just two passages you can write down. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 10 through 13. God looks at Israel and finds their wickedness to be detestable, abhorrent. He hates it and he says, I'm going to judge it. I'm going to judge you. That's Ezekiel 18, 10 10 through 13. Ten verses later, in Ezekiel 18, verse 23, he says, I do not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. I am pleased when they turn from their ways and live. I am pleased when they turn from their ways and live. Again, tension. Tension. Jeremiah chapter 48. Just write down Jeremiah chapter 48. does the same thing. God says to Moab, I hate you. You have sinned against me. I will destroy you. And then he says to Moab, and when you are destroyed, I will weep with sorrow in my heart over your destruction. How, do, how does this happen? We can't fully understand it because, number one, we're not God. But number two, we can't feel with the emotions that God has. At the exact same moment, he can hate and love perfectly. Does God hate sin Absolutely. Look at the cross. Does God hate sinners? Absolutely. We are children of wrath. Uh, Psalm 5, 5 says that he hates all who do evil. Look at the cross. He slaughters uh, Jesus as if he had sinned. Does God love sinners? Absolutely. Look at the cross. He makes the provision for those who would believe to be saved. All who would believe. Look upon Jesus, believe, and be saved. He hates sin. He hates the sinner. He loves the sinner. All at the same time. How does this work? It's a mystery. There's difficulty in it. And one of 
the, the best books on this that I've found most helpful for me, it's short, it's less than 100 pages, and it's very readable. D.A. Carson's book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Very, very helpful. Um, he says that there are different types of God's love. God loves uh, the Son in a way that he doesn't love us because with the Son, uh, he loves the Son not in spite of the Son's sin, right? The Son is perfectly righteous. Uh, he cherishes the Son, and it's easy for him to do that because he's not a sinner. God loves, the second love that D.A. Carson talks about is the, the love that he has for the world and the creation and, and what he has made in this, uh, in this world. That's John 3.16. He loves us. But there's a, a, a third love that D.A. Carson talks about, and it's a specific love for his sheep, for his bride, for those that he would call to himself. God loves those specific people in a very specific, special, tangible way. We know that. It's biblical. How does it all fit? I love the way D.L. Moody talks about it. D.L. Moody used to say, Written on the outside of the gates of heaven are the words, Whosoever will may come. You're walking into heaven. Whoever wants to come can come. And as you cross in on the other side of that gate, when you read from the inside, it is written, Chosen before the foundation of the world. Whoever wants to enter can enter. And as you enter, you realize, I was picked. I was chosen. I would add to that statement, I think it's an amazing statement, and I would add just yes, amen, and amen. And the Gospel of John is meant to be read, understood, and believed before you walk through that gate. So, whosoever, it's the greatest opportunity given to everyone. Whosoever will believe. This is number seven, belief. It's the greatest response. Whosoever believes. What does belief look like? Is it, it just, is it just intellectually saying, oh, I understand those facts? What does it look like? I've always found this analogy very helpful. There's a guy, I don't know if you know, know who this guy is, Charles Blondin. Anybody heard of Charles Blondin? You can Wikipedia him. There's a picture of him doing what I'm about to talk about, insane dude. Uh, he was in the circus. He grew up, he was born in the circus. Um, he would cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Listen to what he did. He did it once, and that wasn't enough for him. He decided, well, that was boring, too easy. So he did it blindfolded. He did it in a sack, like jumping, I guess. I don't know. He did it pushing a wheelbarrow. He did it on stilts. I can't walk on stilts, much less walk on a tightrope on stilts, much less walk on a tightrope on Niagara Falls on stilts. He did it sitting down halfway through his crossing to cook and eat an omelet. He did it standing on a chair halfway through with only one chair leg on the rope. And so as I have heard this man's story, I think, you know what, he had to have died falling off of this tightrope. He died at the age of 72 from diabetes. So um, go ahead and live it up, I guess. He was in, lived in the 1800s, and he did one other thing that was very amazing, and that's the point of this analogy. He said, I'm going to walk across this tightrope with somebody on my back. That's the picture you can see if you Wikipedia him. There's a picture of a man on this guy's back. So, you want to sign up for that? Um, I'm not going to sign up for that. So he went around and asked people, would you come, would you come? Here, just jump on my back. It'll be no sweat. You'll be fine. Everybody says, you're crazy. No way. He walked into a bar one day. And there was a man standing up around a table, and everybody on the table, everybody on the table around the table was saying, 
There's no way he can do it. And this man stood up and slammed the table and said, absolutely, he can cross with somebody on his back. There's no way that's any harder than the other stunts he's done. He can do it. I totally believe he can do it. Charles Blondin went up to him and said, awesome, you think I can do it? He said, absolutely, you're going to do it. It'll be amazing. He said, will you jump on my back? He said, no way am I going to do that. So this man believed that he could cross with somebody on his back, but his belief was not strong enough to get him to the place where he would jump on his back and cross. That's the difference between saving faith and unsaving faith. We have seen in chapter 2, all of these people, these many people believing and observing the signs and wonders that he's doing. We've seen that, but it's not saving belief. Nicodemus believed that he was a man sent by God, but it's not saving belief. The reformers came up with terms, as they always do, to try and they, they try to simplify things, but it makes it more complex, but it is very helpful. Um, they said saving faith has inside of it three components. There's three components inside of saving belief, the kind of belief that John 3.16 is talking about. Notitia, fiducia, and ascensus. These are Latin terms. Don't worry if you don't get them. Notitia is knowledge. You need to know things about Jesus in order to be saved. You must know and have knowledge about who he is. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God, the message of Jesus. You need to know certain things in order to be saved. That's notitia. The second, fiducia, is you have to have belief. You have to trust. You have to believe that what is said and what you know is true. But that's not saving belief. That's why they add a third thing, and that's a census or a scent. It means to commit yourself, to take up your cross, to follow, to be obedient, to invest your entire life in that thing which you know and that thing which you believe. That is saving belief. That is saving faith. What is truly believing? What is true saving faith? Back in chapter 1, John writes in chapter 1, verse 12, starting in verse 11 actually, Jesus came to his own, his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So believing is receiving. What is believing in a saving way? It is receiving Jesus. Receiving him as what? Some people receive Jesus as the typical get-out-of-jail-free card, and that's it. Some people receive him as who he truly is, as the greatest treasure Receive him as Matthew 13:44 says. Receive him like the man who found the field with the treasure hidden in the field, sold everything he had to buy that field to get that treasure. That is how you must receive Jesus. Also, John 6, verse 35 talks about this, and we'll get into that when we get to John 6. Let's finish this out very quickly. Number eight, you have to believe in him. In him, the greatest savior. In him is the greatest savior can't believe in anything else. You can't believe in anyone else. You only must believe in Jesus Christ. Um, This would have been shocking again for Nicodemus because for a good Jewish person, you have to believe in Moses. You have to believe in Abraham. You have to believe in all these people. Jesus says, forget them. It's me. You must believe in me. Number nine, should not perish. This is the greatest promise. Instead of being condemned, as verse 18 says, condemned already. We're going to get into that next week. Instead of being judged, you are given a um, freedom from that condemnation. You should not perish. What is perish? Is it just die? No. The word but is in opposition to what's on the other side. So instead of having eternal life, you must eternally die. 
shall not eternally die, but instead eternally live. That's just the greatest promise, that you will live and not die. Number 10, the word but, it's the greatest difference. Instead of this, you get this. There are a lot of amazing buts in the Bible. You think of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God. You think of all the different buts. This is the greatest one because instead of going to hell, you have been given heaven because of Jesus Christ. Number 11, you have, um, you will have Uh, This is the greatest certainty. It's not arrogant to say with certainty that you have eternal life. That's why 1 John was written, that you would know that you know that you have eternal life. It takes great humility to say, I can't get to heaven, and Jesus is the only way I can, and I know that. And finally, number 12, you will have eternal life. This is the greatest possession. Notice there's no middle ground. It's either eternal life or eternal death. There's no middle. There's no third option. And it doesn't just mean... Eternal life doesn't just mean that your life goes on forever because everybody's life will go on forever, right? People in hell will live forever. It's not what it means. What does it mean? John 6.63 says the Spirit gives you life. 1 John 5.11 says the life is in Jesus Christ, His Son. And John 17.3 says this is eternal life, that you would know God the Father and know Jesus Christ. The greatest possession is having Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior forevermore as your friend. So my question to you, as we prepare our hearts to take communion, my question to you is, do you live in this forgiveness? Do you know this freedom? Do you know this life? I want more than anything for you today to know that you are loved. If you are a believer, you aren't just loved with the kind of love that's in John 3.16. You're loved with a special love. You're loved with an amazing love where God singles you out and says, I want to marry you. I want you to know that you are loved in this way. And if you do, then today would be a perfect day to celebrate the love that Jesus has given to us. If you don't know that you are loved, if you don't know that your sins have been forgiven, then please just let these elements pass you by and then please come talk with me afterwards. I would love to be able to show you the love that Jesus has for you, that he would die in your place, take your sins, bear your condemnation so that you could wear his perfect obedience and righteousness. As we sing, let's prepare our hearts to take communion. And as we sing, the men are going to come and pass out these elements so that we can take them together as one body. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you that you love the world so much that you would give us your Son, the greatest gift possible, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. This is the greatest truth in all of the Bible. This is the greatest verse in all of the Bible. And God, we thank you for your amazing love. May we celebrate it together. And even now as we prepare our hearts to remember your sacrifice, as we've done just this morning. May we stand in awe of your greatest gift, of the greatest reason to to give that gift is your love and the way that we could see your glory on display. God, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. We pray it in his name.